you have a Bible, I want to invite you, a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Uh, we have been on a, a journey for a while now, over a year, with several breaks in there, um, but looking at this wonderful gospel. It's the shortest gospel in uh, the New Testament, and it is, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Mark gives us a quick, really, synopsis. He is quick to go he leaves out details sometimes that Matthew and Luke, especially, those two really give us. Uh, they are still known as a synoptic gospel, meaning they're the same stories from different witnesses and different approaches from angles. And their audiences, you have to remember that too, as they're writing these books, as they're writing this gospel, Mark is writing to a Roman audience. Uh, he's writing more to a Roman audience, whereas Matthew and his gospel, as he's writing about the story, is he's writing from a Jewish perspective, reaching to the Jews specifically. Uh, and so that helps us as we approach God's word, even to know who was the audience, what was the occasion, why was it written, and what was its purpose. And we've looked at that as we've journeyed through this book. And we've come, if you're new to, new to us and new with us, uh, we've come we're at the last week of Jesus' life. We're in chapter 12. There's 16 chapters in the book of Mark. Uh, Mark's favorite word, I said this throughout our series in this, he says the word immediately a ton. And he says, immediately uh, this happened. And immediately the disciples did this. Or immediately Jesus did that. And so he's kind of quick with his details and moving. And he's getting us to the last week of Jesus' life. And here we are to the last week of Jesus' life as recorded in the scriptures. And in Mark chapter 12, where we are now is to the second, we're on Tuesday. Uh, we look, we've looked at some of the events of this week so far already. Um, and, and we've seen as he overturned the, the money changers, the tables in the temple, as he goes to Jerusalem, he's been predicting his death to his disciples, saying the Son of Man must suffer. And he gives us three different instances of that, of explaining what is about to happen to himself. We've come to this last week. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets there and he rides on a donkey. It's the, it's the story that if you're familiar with church and familiar with the Easter season at least, you know, the week before Easter is Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a day where we look at that last week of Jesus' life. And so Palm Sunday, him entering on this donkey and the people proclaiming Hosanna. They are praising him. They're giving this kingly procession, even though he's coming in on this cult of a donkey, this uh, this small uh, animal as he rides in in such humility, not on a war horse. And here as he comes this week, eventually he goes to the temple. And as he goes to the temple, he's heartbroken over what he sees. And, and anger is overwhelming him as well. And so he's angry at what he sees. As the temple was a place, and he said, that my house to be a house of prayer. Again, quoting scripture as Jesus so well did. And he says this, and then he overturns because he sees the, the, the really almost like a bazaar happening where there's people trading and selling, and there's all this activity, and it's centered not around worship and prayer. It's centered around monetizing the, the ministry and making money as people come and selling animals and all those things and overpricing those things so that they could make a few dollars. And there's a specific group that made money off of this, and they had a lot, a very much a big influence, and that's the Sadducees. They're a group that we have not seen yet in the book of Mark, not directly exp um, uh, um, expressed by Mark. We don't see any picture of the Sadducees as we read the book of Mark. We've heard about the Pharisees. Uh, we've seen a little bit about the varying groups who've asked questions like we just saw last week, the Herodians and the Pharisees, two outsiders who would not get along at all. 
The Herodians very much in favor of Rome and very much in favor of the Herods, uh, even though they're the occupying uh, uh, um, rulership and their government over the Jews at the time. And sure enough, as they are there, they're asking these questions, and really their questions are not questions. They're really trying to trap Jesus in his words. They all have their reasons and their reasons for getting rid of and eliminating Jesus. He is a threat to all these various groups. And now as we come to the next question on the same day, we're still on Tuesday of that week. We come to chapter 12. And what we're going to see, I just have it really broken down in kind of three points this morning, uh, is looking at this first, this absurd question. We see this absurd question starting in verse uh, 17. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 12, uh, starting in verse, or sorry, verse 18. And it tells us, it says, And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Again, this is the first time we're hearing about these, this group of, of men uh, known as the Sadducees. They were a wealthy, aristocratic, who had a significant influence in politics and the temple. So, for instance, what I was just telling you, so Jesus overturning the money changer tables and all those things, that hits at them specifically pretty hard. Uh, they're not happy about Jesus showing up and overturning the money changer tables and all those things because they had big, powerful influence over the temple. And this group, we are already told a little bit about them. Here we're told specifically, they do not believe in a resurrection. So this group of people, the Sadducees, to help you understand this a little bit more, we're told that in this passage, but we don't know much else from this passage about them. So let me help you just for briefly, really quickly. So the Sadducees, again, they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe you live and die. No, there's no life. They don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in um, the supernatural. And so they also only held to, because they are Jewish, they're a Jewish group, and they did believe in the Bible, but as it were, but they only believed in the first five books. The only ones they believed and listened to and observed were the first five books of the Bible. So the first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch, and it's kind of the Torah, and it's the law. It's the, and, they only, and that was written by Moses. And so they only listened to the law of Moses. They didn't worry about Isaiah. They didn't worry about David and the kings and the prophets and all that stuff. They only focused on the first five books of the Bible. They only believed in Moses and the law there. And so here's this group of people, these, these super, I guess you would say they're, they're very con theologically conservative, very restricting in this, in this way. And here they're going to have their absurd, what I want to show you as an absurd question. And it says, and the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher. So again, who do they listen to? The first five books of the Bible, Moses. They say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there's a story in Genesis. I'm not going to quote it in here. Uh, feel free to read it in your Bibles later, or maybe if you're in your Bible reading plan, you're going to get there pretty soon. But there's a story of this happening, this actual picture of this. There was a man, Onan, who was, who was supposed to fulfill uh, this 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 command this, this, that Moses had given to the people to take care of, for instance, a widow who had not had children. So, for instance, you're in this family, and this, this lady marries uh, her husband, and they, they, 
They try to have a family, but they're incapable of having a family. Now, everything is wrapped up in, especially, it's still, you can see it even in the American culture to a degree, but it's definitely not nearly as significant in our culture as it is in other cultures, and it definitely was in the day, of carrying on the name. So, for instance, like Austin Trine, for instance, he is the only, on the, the Trine side, he is the only uh, male Trine that's left to bear children. And so Landon now, by having Landon, now there's another, another generation of a trine to keep passing on. Because David was, um, they all, his, his, siblings, or his siblings all had girls and all that stuff. And so Austin was the only boy. Uh, and, so he conti- and so by him having Landon, it's like, all right, another generation is carrying on the trine name. And so in this culture, though, it was a really, really big deal to carry on the name. But it's not just about carrying the name. It's also a way for caring for the widow. When she was to pass away, when her husband passed away, it's like she's losing everything. Because all of a sudden, there's no heir. There's no, there's no person to now. Because the children and the, and the firstborn son would carry on the wealth of the family and, and the land and all those things. So you lose all of those things. Uh, the story of Ruth and Boaz is another picture of this in this way, of a family member um, observing this law. And it was the Leverite marriage law. And so it was instituted in this way. And so this is a way to carry on. So if there was a, a brother who did not have a wife, um, and then, so there's a or brother-in-law, let's say. So the, the wife here, her husband dies. All of a sudden now, what this law was, was if there's another brother who's unmarried, he then had this responsibility to marry her, his, his sister-in-law, to then hopefully have a child in the, in the one who died his name. And so that his name and that family could continue on. And so here's their absurdity of their question. The Sadducees, they come to Jesus, they say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they could have just, they could have just said, here's the story, Jesus. There's, okay, there's another brother, and then he has, so she dies, and then they mar- she marries another. She marries the brother, and this is kind of their scenario. They could have just gone with one, but instead they go with seven, as you'll see. So verse 20, the absurdity here. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Here's the actual question. You ready for it? Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So their question is like, well, like, okay, she's had all these husbands all these years, and then now they've all died, and then now she's also died. In the resurrection, Jesus, who is she going to be married to? Which one? Now, do you remember their question here is in the resurrection? Now, what did we first find out about this group of people? The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. See, you see the absurdity of their question. They're not actually wanting to know about the resurrection, and they're not actually have a legitimate question. Well, Jesus, I was curious, you know, like once we all die, and say some of us have had multiple wives in our life because of death and various things, and so we get to heaven, and as long as they're there too, I guess, who are we going to be married to? 
That's not their actual question. Their question isn't, who actually are we? He's questioning the legitimacy of the resurrection. He's co- they're coming after Jesus and saying, they don't believe in the resurrection. Let me give this absurd scenario. Seven brothers who were unable to have children, and this woman has married all of them consecutively, just one after the other, and then all of a sudden they've all died. What happens, Jesus? In the resurrection, who will she be married to? This is the question that they're asking, and it's an absurd question, and so it's going to get a strong rebuke. So now we've seen this absurd question. Secondly, here, look at the strong rebuke by Jesus. Notice verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? First, let me just stop there for a second. You know, we in our culture like to say, like, we don't want to be offensive, right? I don't want to offend anyone, so I don't want to call out someone when they're wrong. We just kind of let it slide. Or that's, we use, there's a big phrase we use, it's my truth. Like, that's my truth, your truth, my truth, it's my truth, your truth, those kind of things. Here Jesus says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Jesus has no problem telling them that they're wrong. And he calls them out and he says, you are wrong. And note, I want you to hear this. This, this is, I think, is a big warning for us as well as individuals. He says this. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because, listen how strong this is. Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He's saying, here's the reason. You don't know, you know why you're wrong about your whole question and your premise? Because he knows that they're coming after resurrection. They're not actually coming after marriage and who's going to be married and who are you going to be married to in heaven and all these things. No, he knows he's tr- he, they are trying to make a fool out of him by giving him this massive scenario. Because if he says, well, in heaven, you know, he'll be married maybe to the first one. Well, they'll be like, well, well why is that? Why, why not the others? Or if he's just kind of if in the resurrection. They're married to all of them. Well, well, now Moses said that, that why did he write and tell us that there was something called um, uh, adultery? Wouldn't that be adultery if he's married to all these different women in heaven? There's this absurdity of the question, and they're not actually wanting to know the details. And I don't know about you, but this is, this is what you can find, right? A lot of times you can find people saying, you know, well, trying to bring philosophy and, and various things, and, and, and they can ask questions like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and if there's no one to hear it, did it actually fall? Like, how do we know if it really fell? And we can have this conversation about philosophy, or we can say, if God is all-powerful, right? Like, if, okay, you can ask this question. If God is all-powerful, could he make a square a triangle? Can he make a triangle a square? We try to play these games of physics and different things and the laws of, of nature and all these things and, and, and ask these kind of questions. But a lot of times they don't really come from a legitimacy. They come from a, a, a skeptic. They're not coming from a belief in. And here Jesus is saying, here's the reason that you're wrong. It's because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the scriptures I like what the story is told in history of, in 1750, that the French philosopher Voltaire made a confident prediction that the Bible would become extinct within a mere 100 years of his death. He said, there's, there's, it's not going to continue. It's not going to continue. And so after I die, I, I, I'm making a prediction that the, the scriptures 
will be extinct within a mere hundred years after his death. In what I like to describe as a savage move, (laughs) 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home for printing Bibles. They, pr- they purchased his home to use that as the place to print Bibles. And obviously, as you know, we're looking at copies of God's Word. The, big, the highest seller of books every single year is God's Word. Every single year. It's the highest. In Acts, this is the question. Right When they had Peter and John in prison and they were going to come after him, but they're a little bit worried. This movement's happening and they're a little bit worried about their power. What was the thing that one of the, the, the priests said? The priest said, we'll let, we'll let it see. If it's a thing of God, it will continue. If it's not of God, it will pass. And so we'll kind of we'll wash our hands of it and let them go. And sure enough, what we see is the most incredible movement of God and the spread of the gospel all over the world through the pages of the book of, books of, the book of Acts. You see, you can never underestimate the power of God. God has all power. We've been looking at how he can move king's hearts. And he has established, as we looked at last week, he's established government, instituted government. And and yet there might be evil kings and there might be uh, ruthless leaders over nations. But yet behind it all, in in the grandeur of who he is, and that he's just distant, some grandpa in heaven. No, he's active, and no person has authority outside of his sovereign hand. He has all authority, and he's saying that they don't know the power of God, and they don't know the power of God because they don't believe the scriptures. They don't believe that God's word is true. See, they don't believe in the scriptures, and remember, they only were holding to the first five books of the Bible in the first place. And he's saying all they had was five books, and they would have memorized them. They would have known them really, really well. But yet, they missed many, many things about who God is, and we're going to see that in just a second. They were missing these things. And so here, Jesus now, after dealing with this strong rebuke, the reason you don't, you don't, uh, you're asking all the wrong questions and you're asking the wrong question because you're questioning me. And it's here's the reason that you're wrong is because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And so in verse 25 through 27, we get a clarifying response to their question. Look at the clarifying response here in verse 25. Notice just even what he does here. For when they rise. Notice that. <laughs> even in a, just a little statement, we see Jesus already saying. He didn't just say, he's not like, he's answering the question of when they rise. He's already affirming that they will rise just by making his statement. For when they rise from the dead. Notice what he says. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I'm going to explain all this in a second. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read? Notice this. <laughs> Again, they, they know the scriptures, supposedly. We obviously find out they don't actually know the scriptures. But they, again, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these five books written by Moses, notice what Jesus says. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? I even love how Jesus would say that. It's like, you know, when you're trying to remember that story and you're like, what's that story again? It's the one with the bush. I just like how he says it here. It's like, you know, you remember that story, guys, about the story about the bush? You know, it was on fire but never burning up. And then God spoke from this fiery bush. You remember that one, guys, in your Pentateuch? 
Yeah, 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 we remember that one. He says, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, you are quite wrong. So in his clarifying statement, notice a few things that he says. One is he's in fact saying there is in fact a resurrection. Now scripture points to this. We see this in the gospels. Jesus has been talking about his own resurrection. That he will suffer many things and rise from the dead on the third day. Speaking to a resurrection. But the Old Testament is also filled with resurrection language. Listen, I want to give you a few. Job 19. Starting in verse 25, in the middle of verse 25 says this. It's a wonderful, there's a song to it as well. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, notice this, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. It's language of resurrection, of life beyond death. Psalm 16, as David writes, starting in verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your height hand are pleasures forevermore. This is language of life beyond this life, of no corruption. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, these are all great verses. Jesus could have pulled from Daniel. He could have pulled from Job. He could have pulled from the Psalms. He could have pulled from the minor prophets. He could have pulled from a multitude of places in the Old Testament. But he went all the way back to the book of Moses for his audience. His audience believed in the book of Moses. They, they believed, what I'm saying is the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he takes them to Exodus 3. Austin read this earlier. And Jesus doesn't use these verses, the, these verses the Sadducees only believe in these books. And so he goes here. Notice what he says. Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, here's the words, the two words right there. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do you hear what he said? I am. I'm not. I, I was a God for Jacob. I was a God for Abraham. I was a God for Isaac. No, I am. They've been long dead. In the book of Genesis, by the time we get to Moses, they have been long dead physically. And yet here, when God was speaking to Moses, he was saying, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I currently am the God of them. They're not dead. They're alive. I am still their God. And here is what he's saying. He's like, remember what he said? You don't know the scriptures. I think small, quick little lesson for us all here 
is, is we can read scriptures, uh, man and I, we're talking about this recently, it's like we can read scriptures and try to be like, all right, this year I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to read the whole thing all this year. And that can be a wonderful goal. And I would, I would encourage, I mean, encourage it. Read for, for breadth, you know, like read through scripture. Be taking in the Bible in your daily life. But don't miss out on the details. Because sometimes we can read something and never notice something like a statement like this. You see, these Sadducees, they knew, and they probably had this passage memorized. When Jesus started to say, remember that story of the bush? They'd been like, yeah, Exodus. And they start saying it. They could have said this story back to Jesus and totally missed how Jesus was saying, or that God was saying, I am the God. Present tense. I am the God of Abraham. Currently, still to this very day. They are with me. And we've already seen in the, the gospel of Mark, as Jesus is being transfigured and we get this picture of his glory, we get a picture of people who are long had been dead physically appear with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're told of these promises of old, but here Jesus is saying, yes, there is a resurrection. Now, Answering their actual question, even though it wasn't really their question, he still answered that one too, and it's for our benefit. Because notice back to verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, here's to help you understand a little bit. So the Pharisees, okay, so this would have been something the Sadducees would have probably already asked the Pharisees. They would have probably already asked them, given this absurd scenario of seven, of seven husbands and this one woman and all of them dying. They've probably already given this to them because they like to probably fight with the Pharisees. And so that because the Pharisees believed in an afterlife and those things. But the Pharisees always messed up, it seemed like. They always didn't get it right. We see that in the, in the New Testament. But here, the Sadducees were probably giving it to them because the Pharisees, and the view of eternity for most, and I would say it's in our culture today, is that it's just a continuation. Like, you live this life on earth, and then you die, and then you go to, you just kind of transition and just move kind of laterally to this it's a continuation. Like It's not like you die. You, you died physically, but then you're going to live on. Maybe some view it as just spiritual, like it's a spiritual thing, or as many, many religions do, or others maybe with a, a physical body, or some with reincarnation. You're going to come in a different, totally different species, potentially. And, and, but here's this picture, is, is they often would just see it as kind of just this continuation. You, you die, and then you just go on, but it's like a renewed you. It's like it's a renewed you. It's not a, a new totally different uh, picture. And what Jesus was describing here is like, it's not just a continuation. Like, all right, you were married in this life. You had four kids, you had three kids or two kids or no kids, or you were single and you just kind of, you die and then you just kind of continue into that. You're just delayed on all getting together. We're going to have this family gathering in heaven. We're all going to be together. Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not the, exactly the picture here. The picture is it's a totally different. It's totally new. Yes, there are aspects. Obviously, we will, as First, uh, first Corinthians tells us, Paul describes, you're going to be known as you're fully known. Like, you're going to be actually fully known, more known. But it's going to be, yes, there's going to be a physical you. Yes, there'll probably be gender in that aspect of, like, you're not all of a sudden going to be a male in this life and a female in the next life and those kind of things, right? Like, you're going to be you in the next life. But it's this picture of of a a not just a grander you or a, a better version of you. It's, a, a, it's totally different than we can really even put into words. I like what Jonathan Edwards says. 
He says this. This is from 1700s. 1703 is uh, when he lived. So we're talking about a long time ago. He says it really well in a sermon that he had given, talking about heaven. He says, in heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. And what he's really describing is, is like that, that there is this joy, there's this perfection in heaven that the, the means of what earth and creation and its ordination for us, that in the beginning God created man, male and female in the, in the garden. And he told them to multiply and fill the earth. There was a purpose behind creation and that there was a purpose behind the family unit. And you're going to have a relationship. And there's a, a gap even in, to a sense that we're, we're, we have this relational desire that for relationship. And in marriage, that is in some way fulfilled. But it's never meant to be full. It's never meant to be the, the, the extreme. It's never meant to be the culmination of like, man, like, like once you're married, once you get to be in an intimate relationship, that that's the culmination of living. No, Jesus is saying that's not the culmination of living. It had a specific purpose on earth in the creation order. That in the, a new heaven and a new earth, there's not a need for procreation. There's not a need to fill heaven with children and, and laughter and all those things. And there's, there's no need for sexual relationships. To, to, yes, there might be joy in all of that, and there is in this life. But his point is this. It's not you're going to get to heaven and go, man, I really missed that aspect of living. <laughs> like sitting around going like, man, I really, really want that. No, you're, what, what um, Jonathan Edwards is, saying, is describing is that in heaven, all of your joy and all of your satisfaction is made complete in him. Every need, every desire, every want is met in Christ. And he describes this aspect of saying, we'll be like angels. And I think we can get way off base here. He does not say you will be an angel. Many people want to say that, right? When a loved one dies, they now become my guardian angel, or they're like angels in heaven. No, this is not what we get from Scripture. This is not where it comes. There's no place in Scripture that gives us this. And Jesus using this, I believe, first and foremost, he's using that to really answer the question about, will we be married in heaven? And he's like, like angels, you will not be married in heaven. Yes, will you know your loved ones? And yes, would you know the person that you married in this life? Yes, will you know these things? And, and in some ways, yes, it's a gathering of the saints and, and knowing one another and all of this. But there's, not a, there's needs that were meant for this created order is not meant in the next. You know, marriage is a gift. It's a good. It's something that we experience the joy of intimacy. And yes, all of these things. And I, I mean, I remember, right? Like when I was in high school, it was like, man, I can't wait to uh, get married and have children and a family. And it's like, okay, I would always freak out about like God returning. I'm like, God, would you just wait at least till I get married, have children, those things, right? And like, because we kind of think that is like, this is like the culmination. But here's the picture. Jesus, even on this earth, for those of us that are, that are single, you know, here's Jesus on earth who lived 
sing, in singleness. This isn't the culmin- marriage isn't the culmination. It has a specific purpose. It reflects our relationship with God. That no longer in heaven will we need to be married and given in marriage because the bride of, as the bride of Christ, we have our relationship perfectly and fully met in Christ alone. David Garland, um, one of the comment- commentaries that I've been using through our study through Mark, he said this as well, and I think this is really helpful as well. He says, present, pre- present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heaven realities. He says this, we can no more imagine heavenly existence. Notice this. I, this is what a wonderful way of describing this. This helped me immensely. He says, we can no more imagine heavenly. When you try to think of heaven, like we just can't. We can't fully grasp it. There's just no way because we're limited to what we know in this life. He says this, we can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. They don't comprehend. There's no way a child in utero can understand what's about to happen to them. There's no way they comprehend. And so imagine going from this broken world, beautiful as it is. I mean, there are some beautiful places on this planet. I've been to some, and there's many others that I would love to go to and just experience. When you get to a high a high point on this tall, tall mountain, and you have this vast overlook, and you just feel so small. And you see the beauty. You see maybe the ocean, or you see landscape, and you see animals and, and, and birds flying that seem so high in the air and just soaring through the sky. The beauty of that, but yet that falls in a broken world. And here's a picture where, G, in, where God's Word tells us in Revelation that God will make a, not renew heaven. He's not going to renew it. He gives a new heaven and a new earth. The old passed away. Like, like this picture of, of a new, not just like, let me, let, me, let me fix earth and let's eradicate its problems. Let's just tweak it a little bit. No, it's new. It's almost like a new dimension. It's like caterpillar to butterfly. I mean, totally different experiences. And here's this picture. And Jesus is saying, as they ask these questions, He's saying there won't be marital relationships. Yes, you'll be like angels in the fact that you will not be given to marriage. But I do want to end in this way. Because really the question this morning isn't, will you be married in heaven, yes or no? The question needs to be, will you be in heaven after this life? Is Jesus... And this passage of Scripture is saying they are completely wrong. He nails it in verse 25. For when they rise, he is assuring that they will rise from the dead. And he says in verse 27, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So the question for us this morning isn't just... Will you be married in heaven or not? Or what will heaven exactly be like? And we can ask those questions. The question most important for us this morning is, will I be there with him? You see, because five days later, this is Tuesday. Five days later, Jesus is going to be already put in a grave. Be murdered, crucified on a cross taken down, put in a tomb, sealed to the tomb, in a borrowed tomb. I love that borrowed. I love that phrase that people use. 
a borrowed tomb. Let me just borrow your tomb. Like if you're a dead person, you're not borrowing a tomb, I'm going to use your tomb, right? But I'm going to borrow your tomb for a few days. So he borrows his tomb. And three days later, he rises from the dead. He overcomes the grave, showing for the world there's an empty tomb. I am alive. I am the God of the living. And I am a living hope, as First Peter puts it. It's a song we sing about, a living hope. I am alive forevermore. The ancient of days, we're going to sing as we learned last week and sing it again today as we close. But here's the question for all of us is, how do we get there? What has Jesus accomplished so that we can rise with him and be with the Lord for all of eternity? It's because he came. It's because he lived the life that you and I should have lived. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He came as the atoning sacrifice. He pays the price for our sins. He stands in the way and saying, instead of punishing Eric, instead of punishing you, I will take your sin upon myself. I will pay the price, the penalty for your sin. So he came and he lived the life that I was incapable of living. Where I sinned, he never sinned. Where I had evil thoughts, he never had an evil thought. Where I said what I shouldn't have said, God never said those things. He lived perfectly without sin. And he did that in my place so that he could give me and you and all those who put their trust in him eternal life. Life forevermore. There is hope for you and for me. And it's found in an empty tomb. It's found through Christ alone, the lion and the lamb. And my plea with you this morning is give your life to this one, the one who has control of death itself, who can say, death, where is your, where is your sting? Where is sin? Where is your sting? Death, where is your hold on me? The grave can't hold him any longer. He overcame. And that gives us hope of eternity because heroes we too can rise. There's so much more. I'll teach more on heaven and all the aspects there. I wanted to just focus on the passage at hand this morning. But know that there is a resurrection. And the question more is, will I be there? I hope you will. I hope you put your trust in him today. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, God, your explanation through this passage, even with the absurdity of a scenario and question asked by the Sadducees and how you give us insight into eternity. You give us insight into the reality of the resurrection and our hope that we can have because you have overcome the grave as well. So Father, I pray that you'll help us. There may be someone in this room who doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship yet with you. Their eternity is at stake. I pray that they would get it right, that they would put their trust in you, repent of their sins. God, may we turn from our sinful ways and submit ourselves to the King, the one who has overcome the grave. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to live for you and you alone. May we live our life for you and for your glory. And we long for the day of a new heaven and a new earth a place where righteousness dwells, where there is no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more injustice, only righteousness. Father, help us to live in light of eternity. 
May we live our lives on mission, willing to give of our lives for you and for your gospel. I pray, Father, you would raise up people from this very room and from this group, from our church, God, that you would raise up more and more people to, to go and be willing to live for you and for your glory. May we live in light of eternity, God. Help us. Help us to forsake ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow you. Help us in all these ways. And we trust this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.